Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 through 21. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son, but God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Do not let me look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife from him from the land of Egypt. The word of God for the people of God. Author of life, we thank you for your words this morning, and we ask that your spirit dwell in us and among us as we reflect on your words so that they might transform us in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. So it was with a reasonable amount of trepidation that I set about writing this sermon. For rather obvious reasons, I am not and never will be a mother. So I want to be careful that I'm not speaking beyond my experience. I also want us to be aware of the fact that our scriptures have a troubled relationship with women. While women might be the first to witness the resurrection and therefore the first preachers of the gospel, it's not often that they're treated as equals or even with respect by Christian authors. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, rarely gets a tender moment with her son. Instead, each of the Gospels presents us with a story of Jesus rebuking, chastising, or denying his mother. If even Mary, the beloved one of God, is reduced to nothing more than a foil for her son, 
What hope do other women have in Scripture? Sadly, the church has not improved a whole lot in its view of women over the course of two millennia. It's still a widely held opinion that women have no place leading or teaching in the church, despite, as I have just said, the fact that women were the first to proclaim the gospel, despite the fact that when Jesus is in the house of Martha, she is engaged in diaconia, meaning ministry, despite the fact that many of the patrons and deacons of the early Jesus movement were women like Prisca and Phoebe, even in denominations where women are understood to be equally entitled to lead and teach, like the United Methodist Church, they continue to be underrepresented at all levels of leadership and are frequently paid less for the same work as their male counterparts. I know from listening to the stories of my friends that clergy women continue to be subjected to gross harassment by their congregants and colleagues. Sometimes this behavior is out in the open when men do things like ask their pastors if they'll be performing baptisms in a bikini. Sometimes this behavior is more hidden when licensing boards ask women, but not men, probing questions about their sex lives and their ability to do their job if they have children. And how could the situation improve when we so rarely speak of the divine in feminine terms? Every week we imitate Christ in praying to God our Father, but how often do we speak to God our Mother? There is, of course, reason for us to pray to God as Mother. Our God is the God of miraculous births from Sarah to Hannah to Mary. Additionally, the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, along with the psalmists, speak often of the connection between God and the womb. Isaiah reminding us that ours is the God who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who by myself spread out the earth. And here is one of those points that I know that I need to be sensitive about what I'm saying. So allow me to clarify that although the capacity to create life is one facet of motherhood, it's neither a necessity of the role, nor does it guarantee that one behave in maternal ways. I know that there are many women who've suffered miscarriages or who've been unable to bear a child of their own. I have friends who've gone through each of these things. And so I feel the need to stress that these experiences do not diminish the women who go through them. They are no less made in the image of God than anyone else. I also know that just because someone gives birth to a person doesn't mean that they will treat the person with the love and the care that we expect a mother to have for a child. And the children of such relationships are no less loved by God. So yes, it is right for us to speak of God our mother who gives life to all things, but it is right to give our thanks to God our mother because divine wisdom herself is feminine. After all, we can probably all think of somebody that we know who became a mother in a way other than birth, whether through adoption, foster care, or simply taking someone under their wing. So what does divine wisdom have to say about women? Well, she teaches us in Proverbs 31 that women of God have the capacity to be shrewd merchants. 
that they can be compassionate to the needy, that they empower those who are around them and make the world a more just place for all. Indeed, the proverb proclaims, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. All of this is to say that it is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to our Mother Almighty. It's also to provide us with a frame of reference through which we can approach the story of Hagar. Because before I started in on this text where we see God interacting with a mother, I wanted us to have this bigger picture in mind. Because this is one of those difficult texts where scripture doesn't necessarily have a great relationship with women. For background, Abraham and Sarah were trying to have a child because Abraham was worried about who would inherit his property when he died. The two of them were unable to conceive, so Sarah forces Hagar, her slave, to have sex with Abraham. Hagar becomes pregnant. Sarah gets jealous and abuses Hagar. Hagar then flees into the wilderness for the first time. And in that first journey into the wilderness, Hagar encounters God, who tells her that her son will be named Ishmael, meaning God hears. She then offers a name back to God, whom she identifies as El Roy, meaning God who sees. Now eventually Sarah does become pregnant with a son named Isaac. It's in connection with the birth of Isaac that God famously makes a covenant with Abraham. God says, you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. And here it's worth noting that Abraham circumcises all the men of his house, including both his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael is a party to the blessings of God just as much as his half-brother Isaac. Which brings us to where we picked up the story this morning. It eventually occurs to Sarah that if Ishmael is around, then two things are true. Isaac will at best have to share the inheritance with Ishmael. And perhaps worse, Ishmael, being the older son, stands to receive the better part of the inheritance. So again, she ensures that Hagar, the slave-turned-wife, is sent out into the wilderness this time, Abraham approaches God, not on account of Hagar, but on account of his son Ishmael. God assures Abraham that Hagar and Ishmael will be cared for, and so they're sent into the wilderness with a single skin of water and some bread. Now, unsurprisingly, a single skin of water doesn't last long in the desert, and it runs out. And Hagar sets her son under a bush to protect him from the heat of the sun. She then walks away and says to the God who hears, Do not let me look on the death of the child. And she weeps. Alone in the desert with nothing but her suffering, she lifts up the only prayer she has left, tears and sobs. And Ishmael must have called out as well. We do not know what he said, but we know that God hears his voice. And the God who sees 
spoke once again to Hagar. Her eyes are opened and she sees the water that has been in front of her the whole time. So what do we make of this story? First, with all due respect to Paul, I think it's wrong of us to pit Isaac and Ishmael against one another. I think it's wrong of us to pit Hagar and Sarah against one another. They are all beloved by God. And even though they fight with one another, God finds a way for them all to move into lives that enrich them. I think the key theme of Genesis that Paul overlooks and that as a result the church has overlooked is the theme of interconnectedness. All the people of Genesis are cousins. They're all made in the image of God. And like a mother, God wants what is best for all her children. Even when their lives take them in different directions, God is still trying to guide her children into wellness. This means that God, our mother, wants us to embrace all of her children with love. We have to stop villainizing our Jewish and Muslim siblings. And as members of the family of faith, we have to hold others accountable when they engage in anti-Semitic or Islamophobic rhetoric and actions. Second, God, our mother, sees and hears us. Each time that Hagar finds herself alone, scared, and in need, she calls on her mother. Now, does this mean that God's going to solve everything for us? Should we look at Hagar's story and get the idea that if we just believe enough, then God will stop the suffering in our lives? I don't think so. Because what does God actually do in this story? She opens Hagar's eyes to what is already in front of her. She does not summon a well up out of nothing. God, as my mother has done for my sister and I when we don't know what to do, listens to her child. God helps her child calm down, take stock of her situation, and see what she has. In this case, there's the comfort of water nearby. But in Hagar's first journey into the desert, all that God can do is say, I see you and I hear you. This is a hard lesson that our eternal mother teaches us, that sometimes it's not our job to fix everything. Sometimes all we can do is sit with someone in their suffering, in their doubt, in their grief. Sometimes, as, the, as children of the God of love, we have to let our love be enough. We have to be like our mother who sees and hears. Amen. Would you please join me in prayer? Mother God, you see us and hear us and love us as your children. Help us to see and hear and love one another as siblings do. Bind us together in your heart so that we might know the peace and the joy of being loved. Then send us forth to share that deep, abiding love with all the world. Amen.